can map your way to being a great Alex, let's go bounce, all right? Flash, red ash, red ash, red ash, red ash. I'll get a chance to go on the ice and uh, rub elbows. There's a hundred manuals on how to get into the profession. I haven't seen any books yet on how to get out. You know, I'm just a big, fat, hairy, American winning machine. If you ain't first, you're last. Welcome all to the Cardinal Zone podcast. We are recording this on Wednesday, March 16th in the year of our Lord, 2016. I'm Zach Rastel, and with me today, as always, is Jake Powers, along with Lauren Cox and Andrew Tucker, who, if I recall correctly, this is your guys' first time on the podcast this semester. Lauren, maybe we had you on once. I think I was we, on, I was we on were on once, and we, uh, I remember it was right when we got back. But school might not have even started yet. It was right before the, uh, right after the, the bowl game. It's been a while. We're getting we the band get back together. We did Super Bowl predictions, okay. I believe, at some point. So. Yeah. Yes. All right, so uh, Wisconsin football practice started back up this past weekend, correct? And Lauren, Jake, you were both there? Right, yeah, yeah. They started on Saturday. They practiced again Tuesday. They practice on Thursday, which is tomorrow, and then they break for spring break. Okay, uh, for those that might not know, uh, how do these first practices differ from other ones later on in the spring? Well, for the most part, in these first practices, it's kind of like your OTAs in the NFL where, you know, they're all in, in shells and, you know, just helmets and, and all that, um, but they're not really getting into any specifics for as far as a scheme or play calling or anything like that. It's mostly just working on individual technique. You know, quarterbacks do a lot of footwork stuff, offensive linemen just work on foot placement and, you know, running backs work on ball ball security and, and all that, but they're not, like, running through specific plays as an offense. They do a little bit of, like, setting up some run plays and different blocking schemes with that with the whole offense, but they're not scrimmaging or anything, and they're really not, they're not learning anything too specific. It's more about improving individually together and, and sort of getting the more general things before they minor, they hammer in the minor details later on. Right, and it's kind of it's sort of a, a looser atmosphere at this point, too, especially with the spring practices. I mean, they're playing music the whole time. Um, like Lauren mentioned, they open up with a sort of 11-on-11. It's not a real scrimmage, but they just run through some running frames here and there. And then it's pretty much from there on. It's, it's individual drills for about, I would say, about an hour and a half, and then they break into 7-on-7. Um, they started that this past week, you know, just with the quarterbacks and wide receivers throwing, and then they end it usually on a uh, an 11-11 drill again. And then they'll do something goofy at the end of practice. I mean, the first day we were there, they did a drill where they're having the defensive linemen and offensive linemen catch punts and seeing who could do better. That was pretty entertaining to watch. And then this past practice, they did, like, a passing gauntlet, and they had uh, the linemen, like, run through the middle, and there were passes coming at them from both directions and stuff. They, there were some people with some pretty good hands. Bo Benchwall, actually. He's got some hands on it. He was a tight end in high school. Makes yeah, sense. That, that all adds up now. Yeah, yeah. and B- Beagle ended up getting some terrible passes. He had to die for I saw the video of it later. Yeah, they, they were messing with them, but yeah, yeah it was pretty good. Th- that gauntlet drill is the same thing they run at the combine for receivers. Really? Yeah, the exact same drill. So yeah. some of these offensive linemen got to show off their stuff. Yeah, the uh, Bill Belichick was definitely watching that enthusiastically while, while stroking his uh, metaphorical twirly mustache. Uh, so the, I guess the big storyline for fans going into this spring is the quarterback battle between Alex Hornerbrook and Bart Houston. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on that QB battle? And I guess, you know, who do you think has a leg up? Probably Bart Houston, I think, would it be fair to say, because he's seen playing time before? It's tough because, I mean, Houston, beyond the Illinois playing time, he's never really had, and I suppose he had that one final play against Northwestern, which was weird, in the fourth quarter. But, I mean, with, that, with the exception of that, he really doesn't have that much more playing time. He's 
punted, I think, six times in his career, but that doesn't really count. <laughs> um, so at this point, I'd say it was even, you could pretty much call it an even playing field for each of them right now. And, um, you know, the snaps and practices that at this point you can't really read too much into whether one guy is taking more with the first team or whatnot. They're splitting them, essentially. Like, it's, it's really not, um, you know, it's not indicative of anything to come. Um, Based on just watching them go through drills and stuff, I think Lauren and I were talking about this the other day. It's for every good throw that they have, every real crisp one where they're hitting wide receivers, you know, in stride, and they, they look, you know, like the starting quarterback. They come back on the next throw and just throw it at the receiver's feet or 15 feet over his head. It's they're both extremely, extremely inconsistent at this point. It's it's tough to get a gauge on if one of them is going to be able to improve and really pull away from the other. Um, so far, and I mean, we've watched practice for two days now, so it's it's hard to know at this point. Yeah, it's way too early to draw any major conclusions based on what we've seen. But, you know, like like Jake mentioned, a lot of inconsistency. It's like if you watched a certain 10 minutes of practice, you'd think, oh, man, Hornbrook's got this locked down, and Bart Houston's way behind you. And then 10 minutes later, you watch the next, if you just watch the next 10 minutes, it's like, oh, well, Hornbrook doesn't know what he's doing, and Houston looks like he's got it under control. So it's really wide open at this point, and... You know, it's it's you know they're splitting reps pretty evenly. It's mm -hmm. you know Houston will come out and hand off for you know when they're going through the the first team running drills. Houston will hand off the first three. Hornibo will come in and hand off the next three, even with the same guys, and they're really rotating them in evenly. So, I don't think Paul Christ has any idea at this point, but you have to imagine that in his mind, Houston just has the slight step up just because of experience, and there's no substitution for having been in that game against Illinois and really having to come back and, and play that live game action that Hornerbook doesn't have. Right, and even that, yeah, go ahead. I've got a quick question for you guys. To, uh, has Kari Lyles been doing anything? Because I know that there was some speculation. Oh, he's, he's injured. He's out. He has a left hip injury. I don't know if it's been specified. He's been at practice. He's walking around on crutches, and he, okay. he wow. sort of limps after, um, after the so, quarterbacks, wherever they go on the field. So at this point... Lyles and uh, the other early enrollee, Dallas Genty. He's been practicing, but Genty's the only early enrollee he has been on the field. And then beyond him, I'm glad you brought that up, beyond him, the only other quarterback on the roster right now is Bobby Dunn, who uh, actually Friend I talked to Friend of the Jake him. Powers. <laughs> I actually talked to him the other day, and he was an intern with the recruiting office last year, which is pretty interesting. And really? Then they had a walk, they had a, an open tryout this past February, and he impressed coaches now. He's on the team, and he, he knows that he's there um, essentially as sort of just an extra body, but he has, he has a really good attitude about it. I mean, he's a junior, or going to be a junior in the fall, and he took two years off as just a normal student here. He hasn't played since he played football for Madison Edgewood back in, and he graduated in 2013. He's only five foot nine, and it looks really shocking seeing him on the field, especially because, I mean, you know, Houston and Hornbrook aren't huge, but, you know, they're they're big enough to be... Taller than 5'9". Yeah, they're tall white quarterbacks. So, I mean, you see Houston out there, it's like, why is there a little kid? Or you see Dunn out there, is there a little kid over there throwing football with them in the, in the black jersey? But, yeah. no, he's he actually has been pretty impressive. I mean, he's not getting first-team reps, so it's not. I don't think he's at this point in, near, in the competition or anything. But he gets pretty good velocity on the balls, and his footwork is solid for his size. I mean, yeah. but the, the only thing about him is, like, short quarterbacks... A lot of short quarterbacks play a lot taller than they are. Like Russell Wilson does not play like he's five foot ten, but Dunn plays like he's five foot nine. A lot of times you'll see him like kind of jump to throw something to the balls a little bit higher, and <laughs> yeah. when he's running, and it's just like you can tell he's little, and, and he sort of plays like it. So he's not gonna amount to much, but he's a good camp body. Mm -hmm. It's funny you mentioned that because at basketball practice yesterday, I'd never realized how short a Jackson backs. He 
see the walk-on from earlier this year, how short he was until he and Andy Van Vliet were standing next to each other <laughs> mid-court, and it was like like Dr. Evil and Mini-Me. <laughs> Andy Van Vliet don't do that. To Van Vliet is no. huge. I saw him walking out of an elevator the other day, and he had to duck. It's rare to see someone have to duck in an elevator. Those are pretty high ceilings, you know. But, but uh, to circle back to Houston Hornibrook, obviously Houston has this slight edge with you know, game experience-wise, but also Houston being a fifth-year senior, senior and Hornibrook being a redshirt freshman, on the surface you would think, advantage Houston, but do you guys think that plays any role at all? The one thing that was funny that Don told me the other day was that he's actually older than Hornerbrook, technically, which is really weird, <laughs> considering that, you know, Dunn's had a couple of practices and stuff, but I would think that, you know, maybe, as Lauren mentioned, there's nothing that can replace that game experience, so maybe there's a little bit more comfort with the offense at this point, um, but I mean, it, Again, there aren't too many returning wide receivers at this point either, so it's not like either one of them came in with a ton of uh, of chemistry with one another. I mean, Wheelwright actually got injured in that game that at Illinois that uh, Houston was in, and obviously they worked in practice all year long, but they didn't have that second half of the year together. So, Plus, Houston, you know, he has been around for five years, but he's been under three head coaches, so he has the exact same amount of experience in the system that Paul Christ is running that uh, as um, Hornbrook has. So it's not really like, you know, the fact that he was around practicing different things for a couple of years has that much of an advantage. Was Paul Christ one of the coaches that recruited him then, back uh, with Brett Bielema? He, because that was, he, I would think so. Because if that was Stave's freshman year, which would have been the year before well, Bart Houston. Bart Houston's first year mm-hmm. here would have been Chris first in Pittsburgh, but I mean, yes. still recruiting-wise, you don't know how, yeah, that's how true. early in the process. But he didn't have to learn Paul Chris's exact system. Here. Yeah, no, no, so no, there's not a, in the sense that you know, it's not like Stavi who was on the roster Yeah, for Christ. So That's that, a good question, Lauren, yeah. yeah. So obviously the quarterback battle is the big you know, battle of intrigue, but has there, are there any other positional battles that are really standing out to you guys or that you're really interested in? The one I'm really watching is safety. Yeah. Um, the new defensive coordinator, Justin Wilcox, he gets really creative, at least with his strong safety, a little more than his free safety, who tends to be the single deep man. And actually, it looks like, at this point, it's Dakota Dixon is the strong safety, and I'm sure that's not locked in by any means, but he's got that a lot more under wraps in the free safety spot, where Arrington Farrar and Leo Musso have both been rotating with the first team. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm excited to see where both of those guys, and where both of those positions wind up after losing Tanner McAvoy and Michael Caputo. I mean, there's obviously going to be a significant drop-off in talent with, with those two guys headed off for the NFL, you know, probably as undrafted free agents, but still headed off for the NFL. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they've got young talent at safety, but a lot of it's unproven. I mean, Dixon's the one with the most experience. Although Leo Musso started week one against Alabama and yeah. played terribly, but that's still a start <laughs> in his belt. So, you know, we'll see. I, I like Farrar's size, I mean, especially compared to Leo Musso, but right. Farrar's really big, long, rangy, and he can cover the slot a little bit too. So I think he offers you more versatility on the field than Musso, but Musso's got the experience and, and a lot more... Well, I'm also he's got the experience. <laughs> I like you put some thought on this the other day. How does Wilcox, Lauren, use his safeties differently than what we saw under Dave Aranda? Well, because the hard part is technically his safeties, I mean, his strong safety ends up being more of just a slot cornerback, and it's really just like having one safety on the field. And sometimes he'd like in U- at USC they had Sua Cravens, who was a really powerful weapon for them. That. You know, he he was listed. I mean, he technically played outside linebacker. So they, you know, in their base defense, he would be one of the outside linebackers up on the line of scrimmage. But then when they'd get to nickel, sometimes they wouldn't even get into a real nickel, and they would just put Cravens in the slot, 
and, and sometimes they'd even just take out a safety and keep four linebackers and Cravens on the field and have a safety Cravens and two corners as their nickel package. Mm-hmm. And so he was able to do a lot with him in that position because he could cover the slot, because he could pass rush the line of scrimmage or fill run lanes off ball as a linebacker. And I don't know if there's necessarily that player on this roster right now, but Dakota Dixon is the one that would fit that bill. I don't, I don't know if he'll end up using him that way because I don't think Dixon quite has the talent or the, or the instincts to quite fill that role. But, you know, Dixon played linebacker. He's played corner. He can do all of the things that Wilcox asked Cravens to do at USC. He just can't do them at nearly as high of a level at this point. Sure. Um, Shifting over focus to wide receiver, of course you have Alex Erickson. The, there was kind of some questions on whether or not Wisconsin could get an extra year of eligibility for him. Most expected that he wouldn't get it, and he did not end up getting it. And he was kind of their go-to guy for Stave. I mean, obviously not as talented as, say, Jared Aberderis, but in that sense, in that vein of the guy that they can just kind of go to when they need someone to throw to. Is there anyone on the roster right now that really stands out to you as someone who could potentially fill that role? Yeah, it feels like at this point, uh, as far as Alex Erickson's replacement goes, Robert Wheelwright is probably in the best shape to uh, step in and fill that void. I know Erickson was sort of the possession receiver for him, and Wheelwright has never really been that kind of guy, especially over the middle, in the same way that Erickson is. But um, he was injured for a certain period of time last year. He got hurt in the Illinois game, but he's eventually he was back during the holiday bowl. He had that nice catch along the sidelines. Um, he's the most experienced one out of that group. I mean, there's not a ton of people behind him who have that real game experience. And uh, another thing you have to keep in mind, too, is that the Badgers are losing Austin Trailer, who was out for a certain period of time, but no one really stepped up in his void when he was hurt either. And now, um, you know, those are two primary targets who they're trying to replace. It looks like Troy Fumagalli is probably going to be in the mix at tight end, um, as well as Austin Steffes. But um, those are, you know, two really important cogs of the offense that at this point aren't really covered. Isn't it Eric Steffes? Is it Eric? It might have been. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. Austin. I probably said Austin because I was thinking Austin trailer. You said Austin, yeah. but doesn't it might, I think it's Eric. You're right. The internal. <sighs> well, to, uh, to respond to that, I agree that uh, Wheelwright will be the guy that replaces Erickson as, like, you know, the big guy. I, I can see on your it's, laptop, it is, it is Eric Steffes. Uh. Uh, but Wheelwright, yeah, Wheelwright will replace Erickson, but... A guy, so before last season, I said that Jazz Peavy was going to be a big part of the, uh, of the offense, and he played a role, a lot more of a role than some people thought he would, and I am going to say the same thing again. I expect him to do quite well this year now that Erickson's gone. Um, I think he will step up, and he'll, he'll be a real big play guy to match kind of the possession type guy that Wheelwright might become. Yeah, I think even when you look at the wide receivers in this offense, everyone's going to kind of have a role. I mean, Wheelwright's more your traditional number one receiver, runs a lot of downfield routes, you know, your posts, your corners, your, your goes, your comebacks, and a lot of, a lot of uh, hitches I think would be pretty crucial to getting whichever quarterback this is in a rhythm because I think you're not going to see, I mean, you're going to see a lot like the offense was last year with Joel where, you know, they're not asking Joel to, to air it out and chuck it downfield all game. You know, they kind of, it's a lot of slants, it's a lot of screens, it's a lot of curl routes. It's quick things where the quarterback doesn't even think. He just knows pre-snap. You know, like against Minnesota, that first play, the screen pass to Erickson that was picked off pick six. Right. I mean, Joel Stave knew where he was going to throw that ball before he threw that ball because he read the inside linebacker, the outside linebacker on that side, but the ball was in the box. So that was his that was his key as the quarterback to throw that screen pass because he had the run pass option on that play. Right. And so I think you're going to see a lot of that. And then that was a lot of the offense last year. It's, you know, Joel snaps it. 
he knows what routes Erickson's going to run. And so if he sees a cornerback step one direction or step another direction, he knows he's either throwing it to Erickson or throwing it to Wheelwright or throwing it to Trailer. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're going to see with either Houston or Hornibrook is that you know, you're not asking him to take a seven-step drop, read the, read the coverage for six seconds, and then you know, try and throw it. It's a lot of, okay, Wheelwright's running deep, and I know PB's going to run underneath him on a flood route concept, so I know that PB's, if it's in man coverage, PB's going to have the open on the cut, and if it's zone coverage, then you know, PB's going to pull the underneath defender to him, and Wheelwright's going to go over top. I mean, it's, just, it's quick and easy things for the, for the quarterback, and it's, it's on Joel Rudolph and Paul Christ to sort of, Put these players in the roles that they're designed to be in. Cause, I mean, obviously, you look at their body types. You look at Wheelwright. He's a big, big jump ball, high point the ball receiver kind of guy. Mm-hmm. PB's a little bit smaller, can play the slot, and run a lot of your underneath routes, sort of like Erickson. So it's it's up to this coaching staff to to take the talent that they have, because there are two talented receivers right there, sure. and and put them in the roles that they need to be in in order to help the quarterback, whoever it is. Uh, we you mentioned Justin Wilcox a little bit earlier on. I just wanted to get you guys' opinion on him. Obviously, it's probably a bit too early to be probably a bit too early to be noticing any real differences between him and Aranda because they're just a couple of not too meaningful practices in. But uh, just from you know the press conference, your initial thoughts on him overall. I was at the press conference. Um, His introductory. Out of the three of us. The in, yes, the introductory press conference. So I'll just talk about that a little bit, and then you guys can jump in about practice. And I don't know. He he seemed a little bit a little bit nervous, kind of in the same way that Paul Christ often seems a little bit nervous. He didn't seem to, you know, maybe like public speaking the most. He, wasn't, he definitely wasn't a Jim Harbaugh uh, where he's going to go out and speak his mind and tell you exactly what he's thinking and then leave. He was kind of more reserved. He was very new. I mean, he had just flown in, I think, two days before. But I was, I was impressed with him. I, I don't think he really ever backed down about something. He admitted if he didn't know. You know, people asked him very specific questions about certain players. You know, I, I don't really know. I haven't watched a ton of footage yet. You know, so he seemed pretty honest. So, you know, I was impressed with the way he handled himself, uh, I obviously don't, I didn't watch a ton of USC last year, so I don't know exactly what his on-the-field scheme is supposed to look like and how it's transitioning so far, so you guys might be able to uh, jump in there a little bit more. But yeah, I was just impressed with him, the way he kind of presented himself. We chatted with Vince Beagle the other day, I think it was last Saturday that Beagle was talking to the media, and um, he mentioned that things are pretty much the same schematic-wise, they're just, it's the same thing schematically, but they're just called something different. Is what he said, and it, from based on you know what Lauren you've been researching and looking at, that does seem like it's for the most part true, with the exception of a couple of wrinkles. But um, generally, it seems like he's going to be they're going to be working with the same sort of defense. He has Beagle said that he had a sort of a similar um, type of demeanor as Aranda does in practice. It's sort of it's not like he's in your face. He's not screaming and yelling, but there is a sort of intensity to everything they run. Um, you know, he's, he's very particular. He picks everything apart that they're doing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, for the most part, Beagle said that it's, you know, essentially going to be pretty much the same defense, just different names. Yeah, I've been going back and forth a little bit on Wilcox. Initially, when they hired him, I was, I was, really wasn't very happy with the signing. I felt like yeah. there were other better options available. Like, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but I, it just kind of felt like, a, well, let's, let's take him, especially after losing a, a coach as good as Dave Aranda. But... You know, the more I watch USC, the more I feel like they'll be all right. I mean, I think the biggest drop-off you're going to see from last year to this year is the, the loss of talent more than anything. And I think uh, the change in coordinator is probably going to get some of the blame for that, but I, I don't know how much 
blame you can give Justin Wilcox, you know, when you're losing Darius Hillary, Tanner McAvoy, Michael Caputo, Joe Schobert, um, and Arthur Goldberg, who just walked away from the program for because of head injuries. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think Aranda would be able to feel feel a pretty strong unit, and I think that's where you're going to see the difference in these two coaches is how they develop their players. Because, like you said, the scheme is very similar. It's a lot of man coverage. It's a lot of single deep safety in a zone, and then sometimes they'll make it cover one and put someone in coverage in the middle underneath, and sometimes they'll blitz the fifth rusher and have just man coverage with one seat, one deep safety. They'll do some cover three, some cover two, but for the most part, it's pretty much the same as Aranda. You know, for the most part, when the what they're going to do. It's third down. Well, they're going to be in man coverage with their corners on the outside, and that's what you knew last year with Hillary and Shoulder, Soldier and Shelton, but... You know, the players stepped up and got it done when they were put in that position. And, and that's going to be the test for Wilcox is, you know, he trusts his players at USC to step up in, in one-on-one coverage. His corners on the outside are just, you know, it's, it's one-on-one, make the play. And, and he had to coach them up and put them in the position to succeed and, and sort of step up to the challenge. And it, it remains to be seen whether he can do that with the players he has at Wisconsin. And it's hard to know how much talent he can squeeze out of these guys when, you know, you don't know what you have with Dakota Dixon. You don't know what you had with him with Dave Aranda, so you don't know, you know, if he comes and struggles under Wilcox, you don't know if that was Wilcox failing to get it out of Dakota Dixon or if Dakota Dixon just never had it and Aranda wouldn't have been able to get it out either. And so, you know, I think you have to give Justin the benefit of the doubt, but, you know, he's just not quite as creative as Dave Aranda. And, I mean, he, he was creative with Suha Cravens, but as far as the rest of the defense and, and especially Blitzes, that's where Dave Aranda really showed his true talent, and he would bring, bring up all these stunts and loop in Beagle on the inside and rush Schobert from the same side sometimes and, and all that stuff. And I didn't see that as much with him at US, with Wilcox at USC. So I think that's where you'll see the big difference. But as far as the, the play calling, it's, it's the same coverage, it's just different terminology as every coach has their own words. For it. So for now, I think that's we're good on football talk. But before I let you guys go, we are having our big NCAA tournament preview podcast later, and I don't want to rob you guys. Well, Jake, you can make your picks later. Have the chance of making your final four picks. Andrew, who do you have in the final four? My final four, not the most uh, bracket busting, you know, super crazy picks, but I've got Kansas, Oklahoma, UNC, and Michigan State. I've got Kansas and Michigan State in the finals, and I've got Kansas taking it all. All right, Lauren, you don't follow college basketball. I'm guessing you even filled brackets. I was going to say, I'm, I, every year I've filled out a bracket, but I decided to be a sports hipster this year, and I have not looked at a bracket. Well, I, here's, I don't plan on filling one out. Well, here's a bracket. If, pick a final if four. If you want me to pick four teams, I'm not, I mean, like, I'm not stupid. Like, I know that Duke is really good. I'm not one of those, like... Duke's I'm, actually not that great this year. Well, I mean, they're, number, they're a four seed, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I, mean, like, so, that was a little see, I knew that. Though. I knew that. I'd just like to point out that Zach printed one out knowing that you wouldn't have looked at one yet. <laughs> yeah. It's ready to go. I had the force. That was not, very good. I'm not stupid enough to, you know, like like Matt Miller from Bleacher Report, he picked Texas to win because he doesn't want to call it basketball. Oh, I, like, I, know, I know at least that, like, I know what teams are decent. So I will put Wisconsin in the Final Four just because. See, they're in the East. Then I will put, I'll go Purdue in the Midwest. Shout out to Jonah Balekis. <laughs> Boiler up. Uh, in the West... <laughs> I will go with uh, VCU because they always because I mean ever since Shaka Smart was there it doesn't doesn't Shaka matter. Smart is now at Texas. I know, though. but it holds over. It holds over. VCU's got that luck, so I'm gonna take VCU. And then, um, boy, um, I'm thinking either Temple or Villanova in the South. Uh, I'm gonna go Temple. Just another ten seed. So <laughs> in Ken Pomeroy's ratings, you mentioned VCU having the luck. Temple, I believe, is the highest team in the field of 60, 68 with the highest team in regards to Ken Pomeroy's luck 
rating. So yeah. I guess you just you're going for Luck of the Irish tournament starts on uh, on March seventeenth. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Temple, VCU, Wisconsin, and uh, Purdue. I respect. <laughs> who's who's winning it? Oh God. Uh, <laughs> you might want to take Purdue out of those four. <laughs> uh, fuck it, Temple. <laughs> <laughs> All right. When Temple wins, you heard it here first. <laughs> If, right. if Temple wins, he deserves to win our pool, regardless of, of yeah. the fact that he didn't actually submit a bracket. You'll be considered... I'll, I'll, as the I'll, defending champion, I don't know how I feel about that. I will <laughs> say. Lauren, if Temple wins the whole thing, I'll personally buy you a trophy. <laughs> you can hold me to that. This is, yeah, this is a, a no-risk, high-reward investment <laughs> for me. Well, that, that's all for now on the Cardinals' own podcast. We'll be back a little later on with our actual NCAA tournament preview podcast. Uh, my thanks to Andrew and Lauren for joining us today. I remember that you can subscribe to the Cardinal Zone on iTunes. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you later.